2: we are here with behind the scenes episode number five uh we're working our way through some incredible interviews i'm here as always with dr caleb as a uh, caleb how are you doing today
0: i am good we were just uh chatting about philly's royals coming up so um it's always fun for us to, you got- to see our teams play because it never happens
2: by the time this drops on tuesday the series will be over but you got the hottest be. team in baseball right now <laughs> is it is the yeah. series in uh kansas city or in philly in philly and that's right you're going to the game um Yeah, we'll see how the Royals are on the road. They've been winning these games at home, Uh, just swept the Mets. Good times. Uh, Hottest team in baseball. So it's been a lot exciting to watch these guys develop. Like Bobby Witt Jr. is really coming into his own and becoming one of the best players in the game. So it's been awesome to see that, Uh, see all the guys rally around him and doing this without Vinny Pasquantino, which is huge.
0: Yeah, I think you just said it. You know, Bobby has been on fire, and I think the team is riding that high. And he's showing what kind of leader he will be in the future. I mean, he probably already is now, but they need to win some titles before we call him that.
2: That's a guy, if you're a Royals fan, you just want locked into an extension ASAP. Yep. <laughs> some kind of extension. Um, but we also had the MLB trade deadline happen. Uh, Royals, of course, got rid of anybody who was on their final year of a contract or just weren't going to be a part of the future. Phillies, of course, did the opposite, started building and bringing in some pieces. Um, but outside our favorite teams, were there any shocking deadline moves to you?
0: I mean, there were some weird ones, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to see where I want to start, but Chapin going from the contending Diamondbacks was just, you know, weird. Yeah. Um, I think it was the Yankees who acquired two bullpen pieces, right? Yeah. And just out of nowhere. Um, the other thing yeah, that Kenyon
2: Middleton, I haven't seen that name in forever. And now he's a Yankee.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it was more than two because it was two yeah. guys from the Dodgers they got. Um, Jake Berger, the Josh Bell was an interesting trade. It was almost like a trade that shouldn't that could could not have been a deadline trade and could have still worked. Um, and doing it during you know yeah. a divisional series against the Phillies and then you know losing your three and I think six or eighth hitter whatever it was um for that game because of that trade. So there were a lot of um, interesting things. I think we saw like the, the needs of catchers hedges going, that was interesting. But I would say like the movable bullpen pieces was probably the most shocking to me if I had to pick one.
2: Yeah. I think the the one shock to me was the Cleveland guardians being two games out taking and selling the, the team, getting rid of Josh Bell, getting rid of Aaron Savale, basically the front office going to the clubhouse and be like, Hey, We don't believe in you. We're getting rid of guys. Like I just that was mind blowing to me. And then when you look at the AL Central, there's no competition in there. Like the twins are fine. They're okay. They're not great. I mean, the White Sox, Tigers, and Royals aren't gonna give you any fights, except apparently now the Royals are gonna just start winning games. But like to me, I'm like, if you're the Guardians fan, you have to be like, what are we doing? The two uh-huh. games out, we had our biggest offseason expenditure that we spent, and we traded Josh Bell to the Marlins to get a guy in Khalil Watson who's not even close to big league ready. Um, and Manzotto, they might cut. Yeah, and the Manzardo return was fine. Like that's a big league ready first baseman probably that can replace. I think that's Josh why Bell. they do the
0: Josh Bell trade. And the yeah. weird thing about that team is, or the franchise in general, Cleveland. It's hard to doubt their moves because sometimes they always end up working. And I think a lot of what they do is they ride these highs and they get rid of the guys at the the peak. But the even though it wasn't a deadline deal, the Syndergaard deal was like you just want a guy who can eat innings. But like we saw them lose Lindor and they're still yeah. contending years after Lindor. So it's really hard to question what they're doing.
2: Do you think Jose Ramirez just sits there and is like, "What are we doing, guys?" I do, but <laughs> yeah, but
0: you got to give him some credit <laughs> because he's the the consistent piece there. Yeah, and they do compete whether they're great or not. They do compete. I, I I would say Jose Ramirez is at at the nucleus there of of their, you know, I I don't even know what you call it because sometimes the team that they run out is like, these guys were other teams, fringe players and guys who they didn't want to really like, you know, like Miles straw, like they didn't want to keep. Right. And Jose Ramirez is always in the middle (laughs) of lineup, always producing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's going to just be frustrating for Guardians fans, though, because right? they want the, the players that are going to take them to the next step so they can actually win a World Series since they haven't since, what was it, like 19-something, 40, 41 or 42? I can't remember. Um, but I, and it's just, like, of course, the Guardians go and get no hit by Fran Valdez yes. and the Astros right after the deadline, yeah. too um and for a team that has no power and it's like oh we're contact first oriented then you just get no hits well if you're contact first oriented you might want to get hits
0: yeah and you bring up the astros i mean i think the astros and the rangers uh went the route of giving up prospects for yeah. you know aging future hall of famers which is totally fine for what they're doing right now where they're heading um but that could be the other shocking thing is steve cohen basically paying for elite prospects to you know restack the farm i mean me and you were texting about the return that they got from the astros and you know i think both those players are good i think they're both going to have yeah. good careers um it's just it's just a crazy business where they're going out and paying for all these you know names and then trading them for all these prospects and hoping that it all pays off basically because they depleted their farm system over the past couple of years
2: yeah and it's basically steve cohen going uh, i got money I'm gonna spend it and I'm gonna buy prospects.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that that'll be interesting because you know, usually what you see is this huge haul from like, you know, the soto. Let's talk about that trade, right? You have all these guys and it's supposed to, you know, recalibrate these teams like the Nationals did from the Soto trade. We'll see if it yeah. happens with the Mets.
2: Yeah. And then you have the teams that kind of did nothing, like the Twins, the Red Sox, the Yankees really didn't do anything. And I found it funny that Yankees fans were mad that they didn't do anything. I'm like, your team's not good like they're in last place and the yankees fans are mad that like who are they going to go get that's really going to put them above the edge right they're not going to go out and get verlander insurers or an add to that payroll like they're going to go get tommy fam and right field and now all of a sudden the yankees are a contender i don't know i just didn't get yankees fans being upset that cashman didn't do anything at the deadline like, what are they going to do
0: <laughs> they're they're always upset but i mean your point of yeah. bringing in an outfielder they're like I don't know if Yankee fans, I have no idea if they wanted Carlson. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. don't know if that was what they wanted. But, like, do they really need another outfielder? Like, it's yeah. just the team is loaded in the outfit and these guys get hurt. They don't play. They disappoint, whatever it may be. Um, you could argue that, yeah, they need someone who's locked up because some of these guys are going to leave. We know who. But, you know, I think usually what they're mad at is who the manager is and what results are are being, you know, you know, pushed out there. So I think that's actually usually what they're upset about
2: yeah i i want to bring up one more story just because we focus on the human side of things i think it was awesome seeing kind of max scherzer's wife one talk about family and how it gets interrupted at the trade deadline like we're all focusing on these trades and all these incredible trades that are happening for teams but like everybody's there's a family being uprooted and getting moved. And I think one of the trade examples of that was Eduardo Rodriguez to the Dodgers. He turned down the trade for family reasons, um, or at least said it was for family reasons. So, I mean, it depends on what you want to believe, but Mm I think that I think when I saw something in the spring training with some articles were coming out that he was having family issues and maybe for the reason he wanted to stay in Detroit is now one it's August school starting. He's got kids. They might be starting back at school too I mean, if he's finally in a settled in a spot where he's in a good place with his family, he probably didn't want to uproot it. He's won that World Series already. He's had his payday. Um, for him, it might have been like, Hey, I just want to stick it out and hang out um at home.
0: Yeah, I would just add one thing to that because I think that's actually like what I was gonna say at the end is like yeah. he had health issues. I think people forget mm-hmm. about the health issues that he had, and then not that COVID, you know, did anything to those, but that time period of having, you know, not him having COVID, but covid and his family and all that kind of stuff they stuck through you know that with him and you know they're loyal and he seems to be like a loyal person and it's not about selling out not that he would be called a sellout if he went to the dodgers because it's kind of expected but he's doing what's right for his family because at the end of the day that's what he you know is is going to be with and yeah you know we always talk about this there's only so much money to go around like you said he had a payday so i think for him it's like let's see what I can do here. And he's already seen the moving parts, you know, different teams and he's been a part of this before. So it was interesting. And then I don't know if this is true, but I saw this quote at the end that they said he came to grips with it with his family and they were trying to work out a deal, but the deadline passed. I don't know if that's true. I have no idea, but like just even knowing that the family element to this and working it out, I always think that this stuff is something that we will never know about. You know, for example, like just as a Phillies fan, Michael Lorenzen coming to, you know, the Phillies, Yeah, there's some ties there that people aren't talking about. Like Caleb Coffman is pitching coach. He was his pitching coach in Cincinnati. He saw him at the all-star game. Lorenzen grew up playing against, you know, guys like Bryce Harper. And he knew Brandon Marsh from the Angels. So, like, all these things happen. And it's almost like the GM or whoever's making the trades for the team, it's not always the GM, goes to the players and says, these are the guys who are on the block. What do you know about them? Who would fit in well here? And And then they yeah. kind of get all these things. So, I think – People know Eduardo. He's been around. He's having one of the best seasons he's ever had. And I think that, like, he has the right to do it. That's why he negotiated that, as he said.
2: Yeah. I think that goes to to your point, too, Lucas Giolito going to the Angels, like, he's from right. Orange County. So, I mean, there's, like, a family tie there. And, like, they probably went to him, like, hey, we're going to probably trade you to the Angels. He's probably, like, cool. Go home. <laughs> yep. Um but speaking of kind of moving around and getting traded and uh, just finding new homes, uh, the interview that we have this week uh, with Ryan LaVarnway, he's now a color commentator for the Colorado Rockies uh, on camera all the time. You can, if you're watching Rockies games, you can catch him uh, calling the games. Um, so I wasn't able to attend this interview, but Caleb, uh, what were some of the things that really stuck out to you in the interview with Ryan?
0: Yeah, I think when everybody's listening to, you know, Ryan, you're obviously gonna know that he's good on camera and he he has really good tidbits to say and he takes them from his own journey. And like you just mentioned, Jared, he he is a journeyman catcher. We were just like looking at, you know, his transactional thing. He never actually got traded, but there's a lot of you know claims and all that kind of stuff. But new uniforms, and you'll see that in his background, actually, if you watch it. He's got all these hats, he's got all these uniforms. The thing I took away from it is he has called himself a late bloomer several times yeah. and a very interesting part of that is just the maturation of a human and then understanding that this is a not a small guy playing catcher but a big guy who went from an area that was you know pretty pretty prominent in baseball thinking that he wasn't the best ever at any level or any you know team he was on and then going to play at a very well-known school and saying, you know, I'm not even the best player here, I'm not the smartest player here cuz it's an Ivy League school, and then trying to figure out how to then weigh academics and athletics and find his own. I think yeah. he's a a man who's always been discovering his own, you know, of who he is, his, his own self, and that was all, you know, kind of evident in hearing his journey. So I think everybody else will really like listening to that because he's a very humble person. I jokingly said to him, I was like, for a catcher and a You know, a sport that they say don't think and don't use your brain as much. You seem to, you know, be very cerebral and, you know, calculated in what you say and what you do. So I think that's what let him stick in the majors. And that's what helped him, you know, bounce around because he was always able to kind of, you know, pick up with these pitchers and and get a hold of a rotation so that he can catch them.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited to to kind of turn over to this interview. I, just one thing I noticed in the background. I mean, you could probably list the teams he didn't play for a little bit yeah. easier. Yeah. So if you're doing the Immaculate Grid, use Ryan LaVarnway as an answer. You're probably going to get a good opportunity to get it right and have Great a low point. percentage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but without further ado, uh, let's get you over to that interview with Ryan LaVarnway.
0: All right. Welcome to Behind the scenes with Just Baseball Media. I am your host. Dr. Caleb Mezzi and without uh, Jared Perkins today, who could not make it, but we are with a great guest in Ryan Lavarnway. We're gonna talk about Ryan's uh, career, his journey. Um, one of the things I wanted to kind of pepper him with is learning about, you know, his path. And I'm gonna be specific since, you know, the college professor that I am, I wanna hear about, and we can start there or we could start before about your experience as a baseball player at Yale. So let's go there. Um, but Ryan uh, has a career with the Red Sox, the Orioles, the Braves, the A's, the Pirates, the Reds, the Marlins, and the Guardians. I think when you were on the team, it was the Guardians, correct? It was the last year of the Indians. but Last year of the Indians. So he was, he was on the Indians, but now they're the Guardians. So that adds just another team to his uh, resume. But Ryan, give us um, some detail on your journey, and you can either start or you know predate Yale.
1: Oh, man. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, big fan of your platform and the show. Um, I've, I think I'd, I did an interview with one of the other shows on this platform and it was, it was really fun. So I'm happy to be back. Um, as far as what was it like to play at Yale? I, I grew up in Southern California where there's just great amateur baseball. And I was never the best player on our team. And my high school team ended up winning this California state championship. We were ranked third in the country and I hit 482 with eight homers my senior year, and was not even close to winning team MVP. Flash forward, I step on campus at Yale, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, "Am I the best player here as a freshman?" <laughs> and the answer was no, but I definitely thought the answer was yes as I showed up. And you know that was not a popular opinion to have as a freshman. Right. Um, but Yale has produced more U.S. presidents than Major League Baseball players. So it was weird to go from never the best player on the best team to feeling like I was the best player on day one on the 270th ranked division one team. And your follow up question is how many division one teams are there? There's 271.
0: <laughs> well, uh, so my follow up question was actually going to be how was that transition from playing where, you know, you were playing with. I guess it was a juggernaut of athletes, you know, at the caliber you were playing in California to more of an academic institution. And how do you think you fit in both academic and athletics there?
1: Well, so freshman year of college, I definitely thought I was going to fail out. Like I was, I was nervous. The classes were really difficult. I needed to learn how to study. I needed to get better student habits on the baseball field as a freshman, you know, even though I felt like I was one of the better players, it's still a new level of baseball. The teams we were playing against, you know we played nationally ranked teams, you know South Carolina, University of Richmond, uh, you know a bunch a bunch of high ranked teams, good baseball. Uh, so I was really trying to just get my feet underneath me and get used to this new level of play. And what our coaching staff did a great job of was during midterms or when p- papers were due, they would understand that school needed to come first during those times. So there would be a week or 10 days with no practice and you would just lock yourself in the library, study for the test, get all your papers written, and then turn it in and then switch your focus back to baseball. And I feel like I really learned how to compartmentalize different parts of my life when I needed to. And that ended up serving me really well on the field eventually because when I was hitting like crap, I could still play defense and I could still base run or vice versa.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting, I mean, you don't hear that often, especially from um, that caliber of a school, but then also like, you know, D1 athletics, you don't really hear that ever. Um, One of the things I wanted to kind of understand better was pre-Yale and going through that process to get to Yale, talk to us about who you were as a baseball player. Talk to you, talk to us about your identity, you as a person, um, things you like to do outside of baseball. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of baseball to be played there, but you were also a person, so let's talk about that.
1: Sure. Well, I was I was definitely a late bloomer. Uh, my my freshman year of high school yearbook has me listed at five foot four, one twenty five. Wow. So I, I was never the biggest. I grew late. I was also young for my grade. Um, I graduated high school at, at seventeen, so I, I entered, you know, just turned fourteen. Um, and you know, in my heart of hearts, I knew I was going to make it to the big leagues. That was my only goal. There was no backup plan. Mm-hmm. But if you were objectively looking at my path in my career, there was no evidence to support this. My my freshman year, I, I started growing finally, and I got Osgood Schlatters in my knees, which oh, is oh man, yeah, it's when the for if you if you're watching and you don't know what that is is when your bones grow faster than your tendons can keep up. So anytime you bend your knee a certain angle, it chips off little bones off the front of your knee. So I couldn't catch. And that was my main position. So I ended up trying out for the high school team at third base. Uh, because I'm too slow to play outfield. I couldn't catch. So I
0: figured third base. I would have guessed first or pitching.
1: I could have maybe played first. Uh, Pitching was not an option. My arm always hurt at the time. So. Um, I tried out for third base. I was worried I was going to get cut from the team because I was so I felt so out of position. Uh, I ended up making the team. The coach laughed at me thinking that I was going to get cut. He's like, dude, you can hit. I'm going to keep you. But I, I played primarily on the freshman team as a freshman. There was no certainly no varsity. Mm-hmm. Um, sophomore year, I played on the JV team. Junior year, I, I think I made varsity, but I got benched for a, a big portion of the year. It really wasn't until my senior year that I, I got to play on the varsity team. And I never caught one game on the varsity. My main position. There was uh, a kid in my grade, Sammy Donabedian, that was just better than me. He was just, he had grown earlier, um, so I, I kind of had the momentum of a very average high school player. Not not a huge future, even though I, I like felt like I knew I was going to make it
0: somehow. Hmm. So hearing all this, hearing about the physical. I know you want to say it's a struggle because it was just you growing. Right. Um, what did you do off the field? Who, who was Ryan the person? Like, like let's put baseball aside. You know, who were you?
1: I I love to ride my bike and I like to to go running. I was like enjoyed doing long distance cardio. I found it meditative. There was time, you know, when you're in high school and you're a teenager. You're just Music. Just, yeah, You're just upset for no reason. And you just have <laughs> energy. You don't know what to do with. I would just go running. Uh, I had a a punching bag in the garage. I would just go hit the punching bag. And uh, my dad and I would go bowling once a week. There was one of the local lanes had a a dollar for shoes and 25 cents a game. So every week we would go bowling and got pretty good there for a minute. Uh, That was probably my main hobby. And then I had a a buddy of mine, actually his dad is Eric Estrada, the actor. Oh, wow. Um, Brandon and I would drive to the beach once a week and we would play beach volleyball. Uh, I was always doing sports uh,
0: outdoors. Sports yeah was always part of who I was. Great. So how did that carry in? and you can explain this. How did that carry into Yale and then post Yale um, when you were kind of going you know through the ranks, the levels? all the all the
1: extracurriculars, you mean?
0: Everything. I mean, just you as a person, you know, did it sound like you changed a little bit, you know scholastically when you went yes. to Yale and then understanding you know the growth of who you are as a person, but then also the physicality part in um, baseball, but I guess you, we can go revisit Yale, and then that process of getting to the big leagues. Sure. So
1: in, in college, I definitely stayed active, I stayed busy. Ping pong was another thing I did a lot in high school. And then in college, uh, I played all sorts of intramural sports. Uh, I played ping pong, intramural, basketball, volleyball, inner tube water polo. Uh, I think I showed up for an ultimate Frisbee game one time. I was just always doing the, the sports and the and the things. Another part of what I, who I was off the field, um, was I grew up in a household that celebrated all the holidays, but no religion. Mm. So my mom is Jewish, but loves Christmas, and my dad is Catholic but disenchanted with religion in general. (laughs) So we celebrated for presents uh, to have something to celebrate in general, and you know Santa Claus or the candles, but no deeper meaning at all. And my senior year of high school, I started to feel like I needed something more. And I started searching for it. And one of my teammates on the high school team, his name was Adam Ashmore. His mom had MS and couldn't drive. And, and she was Jewish, and she was looking for a way to get to Temple. And I was right. looking for an excuse to go. So I started going to, to Temple with Mrs. Ashmore. Uh, you know, once I got my license, I was driving my mom's 1994 Dodge Caravan with the wood paneling on the side. And uh, that really kind of was the first introduction to Judaism, uh, which has become a big part of my life now. Uh, But that was really my first intro to it.
0: Yeah, that was actually that was one of my questions down the road because you play with Team Israel. So talk to us about that at Yale, because in my understanding, some of the people I know who went to Yale personally are Jewish. I mean, did you get involved in I guess it would be called like, you know, the Jewish heritage, the culture at Yale that was present there? I didn't. Um, now
1: that I've been out of college for a while and I played for team Israel, I've been brought in to speak at Hillel's on universities or Chabad houses, at, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't something I, I was involved in. The only extracurricular I really even dabbled in once or twice was the, there was like a meditation group that I, I went to just to you know try out Zen, test it out, meditate, which I, I love meditating. Um, I don't know. I wasn't involved in the, in the Jewish organizations on campus. No.
0: Okay. So after Yale, tell us what happens. I mean, we can kind of look this up, but tell us, walk us through. Yeah. So
1: after Yale, I got, uh, well, I didn't finish. I, after my junior year of Yale, I was drafted by the Red Sox in the sixth round went to the Lowell spinners, Lowell, Massachusetts. And I I had broken my hand right before the draft. So I'm in a cast. I had surgery. I couldn't really play much that first summer. I went home, lived with my, my folks that first off season, and then went to Greenville, South Carolina the next year. Played in the minors. Had a, had a really good year. Uh, ended up tying the home run record for that team. That next offseason, my mom basically said, hey, can you help pay for some groceries? Or like maybe look into getting your own place. So I, I moved out. Got my own place. Mm-hmm. Uh, played in Salem, Virginia the next year. Portland, Maine. Pawtuck, Rhode Island the year after that. Made it to the big leagues. August 18th, 2011, first time.
0: So tell us about this path, right? You are obviously a catcher, right? You're obviously at a position where every team needs at least two or three, sometimes four, right? And you get pegged as a journeyman at the end of your career, right? Like Mm -hmm. people say you've been on all these teams, but there's a process there that you look and say, you know, I'm going to be the starter. I'm going to be, you know, the guy who's featured, or I'm going to be this guy who's going to carry this pitching staff or whatever it may be. Right. How do you go from the mindset shift? And then you're kind of going through these different teams who are in different stages of their own building.
1: Oh man. So I got drafted by the Red Sox in 08. They had won the world series in 07. So they were the world champion Boston Red Sox when I got drafted. Uh, And I was big fish in a small pond at Yale Having no idea what I'm getting myself into, when I showed up to spring training that first year, and I saw 200 plus 250 players in the minor yeah, leagues, yeah. I was overwhelmed. I was like, "How am I supposed to beat out all these guys?" And and there's there's 25 catchers in camp, you, you know, the top of which is Jason Veritek, right? Like retired number Boston Red Sox legend, one of my favorite players to watch how am I supposed to beat out all these guys? And, and it was overwhelming. And, and eventually I learned that I wasn't competing with all of those guys. Realistically, I was competing with myself to become right. the best I could be. And like the two guys at my level, you know, in the minor leagues, there's the big leagues, triple A, double A, high, low A, short season and, and the complex league. So there's seven levels. Each level has two to three catchers. Like, those are the only two or three you're you're really in in competition with. Um I was drafted in the sixth round as a catcher. Tim Fedorovich was drafted in the seventh round, and and him and I were like friendly competitors and teammates all the way up. You know, we played cards together in the locker room, but then on the field it was like if he played, I, I had to DH, and if I caught, he DH. So we both got in the lineup, but we you know we were competing for playing time. Realistically, right. he, he got called up before me, the first two levels. And then I kind of passed him and got called up the next two levels. And then as we were both getting close to the big leagues, he ended up getting traded. And we actually ended up having almost identical careers in different pathways and organizations. Um, But learning how to stay where my feet are was a, a big lesson for me. Also, that first full season in Greenville, South Carolina, Tim who was drafted one round after me. And I felt like that gave me some sort of edge. He was just playing better than me. He just was. And he was, he was certainly a better defender. And at one point he was playing so much more than me that I approached my manager at that level, like crying. And I said, I don't want to be here just to keep Tim healthy. And and he told me something I needed to hear that I didn't want to hear, but I needed, he said, you're not good enough defensively. Like your, your bat is there. But if I put you behind the dish with all of these pitchers, you're going to get exposed. There's, you're just not good enough. And and as hard as that was to hear, he, he took it a step further and he said, well, let's work on it so that you become good enough. And and uh, a lot of credit and a lot of gratitude to Kevin Bowles, who's I think now managing AAA for the Mets in Syracuse. Uh, but as a manager, he had a huge impact uh, in being willing to tell me the truth. And then being able to or being willing to go that extra mile with me and for me to help me put in the work to improve my my skills.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. And then when you talk about what his honest feedback was, and then he kind of gives you this plan, one of the things I realized in my research working with baseball players as well is that they always talk about task at hand, right? Like you are, you've are you gotten to this level, your skill set has gotten you this far, and then there's that work ethic part, and then there's this real, real realistic I guess, feedback that you get where it's like, you're not good enough or this guy's in your way or there's nothing you can do. Just keep doing the same stuff. But it seems like he gave you some kind of course, correct, or at least some you know drills to work on to get you there and kind of aided you in that process, which is huge. Yeah.
1: Well, what he would do was he would stand 15 feet in front of me with a fungo and rip them yeah. at me. Yeah. <laughs> and hit him. I mean, I had to either catch it or block it or dive for it. And it really improved my athleticism uh, behind the plate because being in a, in a crouch, being in a squat, I have some flexibility limitations in my hips and ankles. So it wasn't easy. I had to I had to learn how to work with my body instead of against it. So much to to the fact that when I was with the, the Cleveland Indians and we did, did a functional movement screen mm-hmm. in, going into spring training where they, they measure all your joints, how far they move, how far does this move. The strength coach looked at me and he said, It's amazing that you're a professional athlete at all. <laughs> Not to mention a catcher. Like, this must be really hard for
0: you. And I was like, thank you. It is. <laughs> I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel so uh, seen. T- so tell me about, you go to the Orioles, then you're the Braves, the A's, Pirates, Reds, Marlins, and the Indians, as we mentioned. Yeah. What What is that process like to go to each team and then to be the catcher? How do you uh, assimilate to the to those cultures, to those teams, to those new teammates?
1: Yeah, so it started in, in 2011 I had my first call up. In 12 I was 2012 I was up and down, 2013 I was up and down, 2014 I was up and down. And then Major League Baseball rules, you're not allowed to option a guy at the team's discretion for more than 3 years. So at the end of the 14 season, the Red Sox were like, "Hey, we still want you, but we still want you to be the up and down bubble guy because we don't think you're ready full time to be in the big leagues." They tried to option me I actually got picked up by the Dodgers first, and then it was. this was in December of 2014. The Dodgers called me, that, hey, we're so excited. We're going to give you the opportunity that you haven't got with the Red Sox to actually play and see what you can do. And then 12 days later, still in December, they signed Yasmani Grandal, and they tried to option me. Uh, then I was picked up by the Chicago Cubs. Hey, we're so happy to have you. We're going to give you the playing time you deserve. Later that same day, they they signed David Ross as a player. Right. They option me. I get picked up by the Orioles. Hey, we're so happy to have you. We're going to option you because we know you'll clear. We had the second to last pick in the waiver process. So we're going to option you. And they, they were actually really upfront about it. I cleared waivers. And then in spring training, Matt Weiders was hurt and I made the team anyway. Wow. That so is crazy. wild. It was a crazy winter. Every time my phone rang, my wife was like, well, what team are we on now? Yeah. Who's the area code coming from? Um, luckily it happened in December. So we didn't have to move and fly all over. So that was good. I really um,
0: I feel like I remember that Cubs thing where they got you and then Dave Ross. I feel like I remember that because everybody was like, Wait, what are they going to do with David Ross? They just had, a, they just got a catcher. I think I remember that exactly happening.
1: Um, so no, it was, it was good. Ma- making a, a new first impression when you go somewhere, it's an opportunity, but it's also a challenge because right. they've never seen you fail. So the uh, the potential is limitless, but they've also never seen you succeed. So you need to put on your best face in the clubhouse, but also put on your best performance on the field.
0: So let me ask you this question. So you get to these teams and obviously, sometimes you're playing more as you know the premier catcher, sometimes you're backing someone up, but ultimately you have to work with this pitching staff. How do you you know, go there and say, I know that I have to hit, that's part of my role here, but I also have to figure out you know, this pitching step. How do you do that when you're on so many teams? And you may have crossed paths with some of these pitchers before, but how do you go about that process? That's a great question. The, the first couple
1: times that I did it, I, really, I tr- really tried to go out of my way to prove that defense was my priority. Because as, as a pitching staff, they want to feel important. They want to feel like what they are doing and what you're doing for them is going to take precedence over anything else. So I really, especially because early in my career, I was such a natural hitter. I was always banging the ball around. Every feedback I heard from the organization was always like, we know you're going to hit, focus on your glove. So that's what I did. It also helped that they had played against me. They recognized me. There was a little bit of not seniority, but um, like I, I, they could tell that I deserved to be there. Like I wasn't some rookie scrub that just came up out of nowhere they never they never heard of before so that helped and then later in my career as i continued to change teams what really helped was as i i had worked with so many different guys before that i had this well of experience and knowledge to draw from to help the new guys that i was meeting like hey this is what clay buckholz did or this is what john lackey did john lesser josh beckett this is what chris tillman did this is what Araldis chapman does in the bullpen you know when i was with the yankees and i could I could really share, like, oh, this guy threw similarly to you. Uh, O'Dowd, he threw like this, and, and you also throw with the arm, same arm angle. And, and when he would attack batters like this, or Craig Breslow, or Ryan Dempster, this is how they attacked guys. I think this could help you. Mm-hmm. And then all the different teams and different players that I had played with became a huge asset because not many catchers have caught this many b- big name guys and really tried to understand their plan of attack and what are their mechanics and what's the adjustment when they need to make an adjustment. So it really ended up benefiting me in that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, listening to this, it, it, this is the first thing that comes to mind. Most baseball players, they say, don't think, right? Like it, it's only going to be a detriment to you and your success. For you, and I really, I'm not making a Yale joke here. It seems like going to Yale, learning how to study, learning how you know you think and then how you learn, how you take the information to digest it, has helped you all over the course of your baseball career and really into what you're doing now, which we'll talk about. But I think you became this encyclopedia, or maybe I should say this Ryan GPT at this point, right? You became this this knowledge base that you can just pull information from and then help everybody else out. I mean, they always say that the catcher is the coach or manager on the field, but it doesn't always mean that they're laced with all this information and using it for their advantage. So all these different teams, all these different players, all these different pitchers that you caught, um, how did you stay, like, fresh? And I know you mentioned meditation. but How did you stay fresh and, like, top of mind off the field? Like, were you still doing all these physical activities like ping pong, bowling, all these different things? Or were you reading? What What was it? Like, what were you off the field? We already heard about it early in your career.
1: Uh, so I got great advice from Craig Breslow. Uh, A early smart in guy. my career. Another Yale guy. Um, he said that he tried to pick one hobby per season to get really that, good yeah. at something, something to focus on that was separate from baseball, totally different um, so that you could really just turn off. And, you know, I do a podcast too. it's a mindset podcast. One of the my recent guests was the mental skills coach for the Toronto Raptors friend of mine. And he said something really important that, or that I, that it really clicked for me was that, but in, during timeouts, during halftime, like coaches aren't giving these inspirational speeches, like in the movies, most of the time the players put a towel over their head and they need to rest mentally and emotionally as much as they need to rest physically. And that's something I, I think I naturally did over the course of my career was when I'm away from the field, I didn't watch baseball on TV. I didn't Listen to it on the radio. I didn't check the stats. I got, when I'm not at the field, I got as far away from it as possible. And when I was at the field, I was totally locked in. So I had a year where my teammates and I played chess a lot. Uh, I had a year where I worked on my my, my drawing, doodling. Uh, I had a couple of years where I took summer classes through Yale to, mm-hmm. to get another semester done. Uh, I had one year where I really focused on community service. I did over a hundred hours of community service during the season. Um, Just different things each year.
0: Yeah, it's great. And if you think about this, going back to your experience in, you know, Yale, but really anybody who goes to college, you're basically designing your own curriculum. You're picking your own courses, right? You're going through, now it's self-paced. So that's the enjoyable part. No one's saying like, you have a deadline and you're like, you know, this happened to me in life or I have a game tomorrow. Like, that's a little different. But I always tell this to students when they graduate, you have to pick your own curriculum from now on. Or you're going to become stale or you're going to become someone who you don't really like. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a few things. So off the field, we kind of understand who you are. We understood where this interest in Judaism and I guess I want to say Israel, but I know they're not the same thing. Um, when did Team Israel become something you wanted to pursue or be a part of?
1: Good question. So 2012 was the first time they reached out to me. That was the first time the team was put together. And they're, for those of you listening that don't know, the, the World Baseball Classic has eased entry requirements in order to allow countries that are not traditional powerhouses to compete in the tournament. So you don't actually have to have citizenship and an active passport to compete. You just have to qualify to be able to obtain it. So Israel, who had one baseball field in the whole country and 250 kids of all ages combined playing in the whole country, was ranked 64th in the world. The guy that ran Israel in baseball decided, (coughs) let's take advantage of these ease entry requirements and get American Jews to play for Israel because they can qualify for citizenship even if they don't have it. In 2012, they put together a team tried to qualify in one of the play-in tournaments and just missed. They had a lead in the ninth, and they blew it. They asked me to play for that team, and I was, I was going to do it, but I ended up being in the big leagues with Boston at the time. So four years later, they asked me again, hey, would you play? And I was like, sure, I'll play, but I'll, I'll probably be in the big leagues again. And for the first time in six years, I didn't get the September call-up. So I was able to play. I played in the, the qualifier. It was held in Brooklyn. It was Israel, Great Britain. I forget who the other two teams were. Uh, maybe I don't know. It's not important. We ended up winning the qualifier, and everybody got so excited, like, "Oh my God, Jews play baseball!" <laughs> so they they decide to film a documentary about us, and through the course of filming the documentary, they brought ten of us to Israel for the first time, mm-hmm. and that's really where it clicked for me: was playing for the team, being embraced by the Jewish community as a whole. And then seeing Israel in person and especially Jerusalem where I don't know if you ever went to the old Yankee stadium or if you've ever been to Madison's War garden, the minute you walk in the door, you can just tell that the air smells different. You just feel the significance and the history. If you've never been to Jerusalem, that's how it feels. And, and not just for Jewish people, there's history for Muslim people. There's, there's history for Christian people, Jewish people. It's just unbelievable to be there in person. And again, like you said, being Jewish and Judaism itself and Israel, it feels separate. They're connected, but it's separate for me. Yeah. You know, and I'm super proud of, of my Judaism and, and what it's become for me in this journey.
0: So one of the things that you mentioned, you know, the, the flexibility in terms of who's, you know, I, I guess, a, allowed to play for these teams. And I say, that cause I don't know what the other word would be, but like, how did they figure out that you were Jewish is, I mean, I, I know you said your mo- your mother was, but like, did they, ask do they just hear like how does that work
1: yeah i you know what i don't know that's a good question i know through the process some of the players they just were searching through facebook and said hey that sounds like a jewish i, guess, I, I like, think that's exactly game. how they find out yeah or or uh, uh so in order to prove it you have to submit paperwork to mlb to prove it uh in my case my wife and i had a jewish wedding so, so we submitted kind of- our wedding documents I know some of the other members of the team submitted a picture of their grandparents' tombstone
0: hmm.
1: uh, with a Jewish star on it and then the birth certificates to prove they were a direct descendant or uh, a parent's bar mitzvah certificate. I heard about
0: the bar mitzvah thing. I was going to actually say that.
1: Um, so yeah, for me, it was the wedding document was my proof. I think you could also get a letter from a rabbi attesting to your Judaism. It's it's a very loose process, um, but there is there is a a form of checks and balances
0: yeah so one of those i don't even know what the you know my might, my might baseball bros came out with that tiktok where they asked people like what was your bar mitzvah theme or how was your bar mitzvah one i forget who the player was said i wasn't bar mitzvah my wife's family is jewish so like that was like the crazy lineage but they probably had a jewish wedding to the point that you just made yeah I mean, well yeah.
1: and the law of return in israel allows if you have a jewish spouse you can become a citizen
0: Okay. So that makes sense. Um, All right. So let's talk about this. since you know, this is kind of actually the theme of this entire podcast, finding the way that is the name of your podcast. You're doing other media. Um, I'll let you kind of talk more about that. But, you know, it's not just this is your life after baseball, right? There is a part of you that enjoys this, that found this. And I'm sure that there's other things that you're pursuing, because if I'm correct, I think you're also taking classes or finishing up. Um, classes that you started or continued through your, throughout your minor league career. Yeah, so so during my
1: last year of playing, twenty twenty two, I think. Um, I forget, I don't even know what year it is now. Uh, my my I hired a marketing team to to represent me and start building a brand. And one of the things they asked me to do was to start a podcast. And it wasn't something that I had consumed the medium very much. Okay, it wasn't something that I was interested in necessarily. So at first, I pushed back and and for six months, I basically said no. Uh, and then I started listening to podcasts, I started thinking about what am I interested in? And what would I like to talk to people about? And what am I passionate about? And what really came into my head was I wanted to peek behind the curtain of peak performance. And, and the Yogi Berra quote really stuck in my head, the game's 90% mental and 50% physical. So if we could really tap into that 90% mental, how can we help people, whether they're in the sports world or not, become the best version of themselves and accomplish anything they want to make in life? And for me, it's really personal because I am a really, really slow runner. And I have limitations in my hips and ankles that I shouldn't be a pro athlete. Um, I have an average arm. I was told I wasn't good enough. I went to a school that produced more US presidents and baseball players. Like there's all these things fighting against me and I became one of the best 0.05 based on major league service time percent of baseball players that ever played. Mm -hmm. And and I I really think that's because of my mindset. So I want to explore that for my own curiosity and also to share it with other people.
0: Yeah, it's great. I think the other part is there's a mental capacity to every sport, right? I don't say I was gonna say every game, but every sport, right? Right. And it looks different and it's perceived different, right? Like there's the ultimate team game. There's the ultimate, you know, individual game. Even, you know, I'm pick on basketball here. Like basketball can be individual, but it costs to be team-based. Baseball, because you're batting, you're the only person up there, can be individual and be team-based. So like there's that part. And, you know, you mentioned Alex, you know, with the Raptors and all the work he's doing. I know that I listened to that podcast and it seems like that's exactly the wavelength that you're trying to, you know, kind of, Gain information and apply your own experience to that when you share this podcast. One of the things I'm really curious of is you go back and do your career all over or there's the next, you know, you right, like coming through the draft, you know, in a month or so. Right. What kind of advice? Maybe it's one piece of advice or a blanket, you know, umbrella of advice that you would give them to really understand that they can prepare themselves for life after baseball when and if their career does end.
1: Sure. Well, there's two pieces there. The first thing is I would give them advice to help their career within its career, their career. Yes. Um, and that's, that's, that's twofold for me. The, the advice that I wasn't mature enough to understand at the time when I was 25 years old, 2012 was when I was given my best opportunity to be a hundred million dollar player, to be the, the guy for the Boston Red Sox. Some people touted me as the next Carlton Fisk. It obviously didn't end up that way. Um, I was called up. I was put on the bench for two weeks, didn't play at all. And then I was thrown in the fire on a team that was playing like crap for Bobby Valentine, you know, terrible relationship between the players and the coaches, even within the coaching staff, the city of Boston hated us. Um, really, really tough situation to be thrown in. And I wasn't mature enough to rise above that. That was, that was my shot. And it was in, a, it was in a tough spot. Um, so my advice to to players is, regardless of if you're in a position to fail, you need to find a way to succeed anyway, because ultimately results are the only thing that matters. Nobody cares if you're in a tough spot. Now to get back to your question, you said, "What advice would I would I give to people for after baseball?" I would say it's tough because it's tough because. I really was a, a no plan B kind of guy. I didn't have a plan B. And I think, you know, when you burn the boat and there's no chance of retreat, you, you try harder.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't know. I say, I say when you're in it, stay in it. That's very interesting, especially the last piece, because there was a part of you over the course of your career. And I'm not just talking about your professional career, but your baseball playing career that. You were occupied mentally and physically off the field, right? Yeah. So you you're playing other sports, you were keeping active, which is a lifestyle that when you look at the career transition for not just baseball players, all athletes, that active lifestyle is needed, right? Because so if you pull that away, it's removed. There's other bad things that could happen. I say bad things because you know, we see things with drinking, drug abuse, substance abuse. We should just classify it as that, that come into play that take place of that. Then, you know, the other thing you're talking about is this media entity that I know you say hired a marketing firm, but there had to have been something there that you were like, I'm this encyclopedia that I can, you know, transition over. I think the other thing that I just want to add in is one of the favorite things I've ever heard on a podcast, which is the advice of one hobby per season. There's an interest there that kept you going, right? Right. And maybe it was just because somebody gave you that advice and you wanted to act on it. Or it was like, this is actually really good because there's going to be days that I have my offers or the days I'm not playing or the two weeks that I'm just you know kind of sitting there trying to figure out what my role is. That part is essentially preparing you for plan B. We just don't call it that. I, I always talk about this on the pod, but I had a client that I was working with once who called me and said, Evan Longoria just came in and he said, if you have plan B, you're going to fail. And, he, and the player said, what do you think about that? And I said, that works for Evan Longoria, but it doesn't work for everybody. No. So you have to kind of figure out what it is. So I think for you, that plan B was just little steps to getting you there, but it really helped you because if you didn't have that stuff, I'm curious to see you know, how you would have fared, how your career would have went. And I think again, that hobby per season thing is just one of the coolest things I've ever heard.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because one season, you know, now, since you've been talking one season, I was candy crush and I got, yeah. I got to level 3000 in a season. Uh, this past year, my hobby, you know, beyond podcasting was making funny Instagram reels. And I had a lot of fun doing it, but in my head, that was never a plan B replacement for the one thing that was the most important. It was a it was an important distraction. It was a fun, keep me sane, keep me sane tactic.
0: Um, yeah.
1: but it never felt like a plan B. And, and people ask, you know, do you miss baseball? And at this point, I think I retired at the right time because truly, I don't miss it. And you know, I love, I love it. I'll never stop loving it. You know, I'm still involved with broadcasting for the Rockies. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm still involved with Team Israel a little bit, uh, but I don't miss playing. And um, I forget where I was going that, but, but the point is like, oh, sorry. Yeah, the one thing that I do miss was from the time I was five until April, I knew what the number one most important thing was in my life. It was my baseball career. And when I was five, it was building towards my baseball career. That was what got me up in the morning to go to the gym, what stopped me from eating too much junk food, what kept, made me go to bed at night at a decent hour so I could rest. Um, so why I kept my grades up so that I could be eligible and, and go to a good school and keep playing college. But it was no matter what else was going on, the one thing was the one thing. There was no other thing. Um, so, you know, burn the boat.
0: <laughs> right. And yeah, those other things were minor details is what you're saying. Yeah. So well, Ryan, thank you very much. Is there anything else that you would like to add either what they can do to follow you and see what you're doing as you continue to, you know, transition into whatever's next?
1: Sure. Uh, check my, my Instagram, uh my website, RyanLavarnway.com. And keep a heads up. I'm coming out with a ch- uh, children's book soon. Uh, it's in the publication process now. It's going to be called Baseball and Belonging. And it. it's a story of how I uh, found where I belong through
0: through playing baseball. Ryan, thank you for joining us behind the scenes.